I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we continue to make our way verse by verse through this wonderful epistle. This morning we will understand more of Peter's words to the beleaguered, persecuted saints of the first century. As we look at five reasons we have to rejoice, certainly our hearts have been stirred to new levels of excitement and praise as we have been contemplating the mysteries of our salvation in verses 1 through 5. In the salutation, we were reminded of our election, the triumphant hope that we have as spiritual aliens, that we have been chosen, sanctified, sealed, and blessed. And then Peter continues on with his doxology of hope and speaks of the source of our hope, the Father who has drawn us, literally drug us to Himself, and the power of our hope that we have been born again, the power of regeneration, the miracle of the new birth. We learned of the promise of our hope. It's an, an eternal inheritance that we have that is imperishable, that is undefiled and will never fade away. And even the certainty of our hope that our inheritance is reserved, literally guarded in heaven. And our salvation is protected by God himself. So we have been given eternal life as a present possession. Now these astounding truths should cause the heart of every Christian to somehow transcend the relentless tragedies of this sin-cursed world, the sin-cursed earth, and soar above the phrase of earthly battles into the heavens of spiritual peace and rest in our salvation, which, as Peter says, is ready to be revealed in the last time. And now, as if Peter cannot contain himself, He continues his doxology of praise in verses 6 through 9, the text that we will focus upon this morning. And he says, in this, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, dear friends, this precious text describes the exact opposite of what most people experience in their life. Even though we do not suffer like those that he's writing to in the first century, and even though we have many wonderful benefits, especially here in the United States, still most people do not experience the type of joy that we just read. For most people, life is a never-ending pursuit of fleeting pleasures, minuscule pleasures that can never be sustained. 
Because you must understand that apart from Christ, there can be no lasting joy. For the unsaved, happiness is directly linked to circumstances. If things are going well, then they're happy. If things are not going well, then they're sad. And so many times, like dope fiends craving their next fix, most people crave something that will fill that void within them. And you look at people today and they're walking around with iPods, listening to their music. They're pursuing entertainment, food, alcohol, drugs. They worship down at the temples here called malls where they worship the God of materialism. And on and on it goes. A never-ending pursuit to find some kind of happiness. But yet it's like a vapor. You reach up to grab it, to seize it, and it's, it's not there. But not so for the Christian. Having been in Africa myself and knowing what's going on in many other parts of the world, especially as I interact with our Russian brethren, you have people, Christian people, that have virtually nothing that the world has to offer. And yet they are filled with joy, filled with happiness because they're filled with the joy of Christ. And unfortunately, even many Christians, especially in our society where we seem to have everything, really don't have that kind of joy because in most cases they do not understand the nature and the benefits of true saving faith. The other day I was watching Bill O'Reilly, which I tend to do. I like his show, The Factor. Maybe you've seen him, the popular news analyst. And he was interviewing a pastor that most of us have heard of, Rick Warren, whose book, The Purpose Driven Life, has, according to O'Reilly, inspired millions. I would argue, as some of you know, that that book and that movement has deceived millions. But be that as it may, he says that Rick Warren is now on a mission to reach new souls around the world. And he asked Warren, how can we obtain optimism in today's world with its, quote, terrible crimes against children, terrorism, war in the Middle East, and overwhelming negativity? How do you remain optimistic with all of this going on? And Warren responded that his answer is faith. He says, and I quote, I don't think you can change human nature on its own. You need an outside force to do that. And I believe the Bible and God's word is the answer. People need faith to anchor them. When I believe there is a purpose greater than the pain I'm going through or the problems I'm going through, when I believe that good can overcome evil, that's the only thing that gives me hope. Well, certainly there's elements of truth to that. But O'Reilly was visibly frustrated with such a trite, platitudinous answer, as I think he should be. What a great question. How can anyone be optimistic about anything, given the overwhelming negativity, all of the problems in the world? Imagine if our pastor friend had said, Bill, that's a great question. Let me answer it this way. There is only one answer, and that is faith. Faith in 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world. And Bill, you must understand that many times God's saving purposes are concealed in calamity. And people need to understand that these calamities can cause people to seek God. And then as they seek God, they begin to understand through His Word, the Bible, that God is holy and that man is sinful. And that there is absolutely no way for man to bridge that chasm between God's holiness and his sinfulness apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when a person places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a radical transformation. The old things pass away and the new things come. And then they have a hope, a living hope, that causes them to transcend all of the problems in this life because they know who they have believed. And they know that He is able to keep them and to preserve them and to bring them up ultimately to the great joys of heaven. And because of the Word of God, we can understand that God is sovereign and He is in control of all things. And that ultimately all of the wickedness that has been brought upon the world through Satan and through sin will be taken care of when He comes again as the judge of this world. My, what an opportunity Rick Warren had that day. This is the living hope, the paradox of Peter's doxology that we read about even here in this text. And in this, you greatly rejoice. That's what he was telling these suffering saints. And remember, what O'Reilly was talking about in terms of negativity absolutely pales into utter insignificance compared to what these dear saints were experiencing and what other saints are experiencing around the world and what we may someday experience should things continue. What a paradox of the Christian life. We can rejoice in the midst of great distress. In James 1, we read that we can count it all joy when we encounter various trials. And the Apostle Paul said in Romans 5, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Indeed, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we as believers wear the hope of salvation. And Jude speaks of this in terms of the blessedness of the one that is someday coming in his great doxology in Jude 24. And likewise, Paul said to Titus in Titus 2.13 that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. So we need to always be ready to answer the O'Reilly's of the world with the truth of the gospel. In fact, Peter later on will tell us this in chapter 3, verse 15, where he says that we should always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Well, now as we immerse ourselves in the text this morning, I hope that if you're here today or within the sound of my voice and you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but somehow you have allowed the perils of this life to kind of drag you down and distract you from the joy of your salvation. 
I hope and pray this morning that this text will, will grab your heart and ignite once again the flames of joy that is your rightful possession as a child of God as you understand what it means to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. There are five reasons to rejoice that we see in this text before us. Let me give them to you and we'll elaborate on them. First, we rejoice because we have a salvation that is secure. Secondly, we have a faith that is proven. Thirdly, we have a commendation that is inevitable. Fourthly, we have a love that is unseen. And fifthly, a deliverance that is in progress. What does it mean, a salvation that is secure? This is the first reason we have to rejoice that Peter gives. Verse 6, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. The word in the original language speaks of a deep, profound, overwhelming type of gladness, a happiness, a bliss that gushes forth from the wellspring of a keen understanding of the love and the mercy and the grace of God in our salvation. And the grammar indicates that it's in the present tense, which means that this is an ongoing, never-ending, perpetual joy that we have. Well, what are we rejoicing in, verse 6? Well, it's pointing back to verse 5. The fact that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, friends, there is no greater power than the power of God. And as we have learned, it is His power that guards the inheritance that He has given us and secures the ransomed soul He has saved as the Father adopts His children. And how sad those that will say, well, no one can really have assurance of salvation. You'll never know until you die. Well, folks, if that's the case, then please tell me what this verse means. Tell me what Jesus meant in John 6.37 when He says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. By the way, that is referring to that God the Father has chosen in eternity past those whom He would save. Then He drew them to Himself as a love gift, a redeemed humanity that He promised to give to the Son, as we read in Titus 1-2 and other passages. And then the Son graciously receives what the Father gives to Him. And then verse 37 of John 6 goes on to say, And the one who comes to Me, Jesus says, I will certainly not cast out. In other words, I'm going to hold on to every believer that's given to Me by the Father. And then in verse 39, He says, This is the will of Him who sent Me, that all that He has given Me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Now, beloved, this is the source of our rejoicing. This is why Peter could say, in this you greatly rejoice. Why? Because if it was up to us to keep our salvation, we would fail. But the same gracious, merciful God that has saved us has secured us. It's so sad, this notion that God may have enough power to save you, but it's up, for you, up to you to stay saved is simply incompatible with what Scripture teaches. So much for rejoicing. Imagine how silly that notion would be here in this verse if we were to paraphrase it in verse 5, and Peter would say, well, you who are protected only by the power of the human will, 
through faith plus works for a salvation that hopefully will be revealed in the last time. You can't really be sure. I hope you can find something to rejoice about here. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying our salvation is protected by the power of God. And the indwelling Holy Spirit has been given to us, the Word tells us, as a seal, a guarantee, a pledge of our inheritance. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. And thus we are told in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians, not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I've often thought, if there was any way I could lose my salvation, I would be the first one to do it. I look at my life and I think of all the countless times I, I have and continue to struggle with sin and discouragement. And I'm just so thankful for the securing work of the Spirit of God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be long that my life would begin to lead to compromise and then to apathy and eventually to apostasy. Well, there's no rejoicing in that prospect. But I do rejoice knowing that the same one that saved me will secure me. And continues to do that. And so Peter continues his profound words of encouragement by saying that in essence your salvation is secure. In this you greatly rejoice. But secondly, we are to rejoice because we have a faith that is proven. Notice in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Now let's stop there for a moment. Here Peter reminds us, as he did them, of the difficulties of life that we face, those heartbreaking times in life that steal our joy, and for them it was severe persecution, it was martyrdom, it was inhumane torture inflicted upon their children, unimaginable suffering. I spoke of that in times past. But Peter is asserting here that even in these trials, you must understand that they have a purpose, and that is to prove your faith, here in verse 7. The term proof, by the way, is a Greek term that was used in the science of metallurgy, or the assaying of metals, where heat is used to refine a metal and burn away the impurities, leaving the most precious and pure of metals. And here, what he's saying, in essence, is that the trials of life are the fire that God uses to burn away the impurities of spiritual immaturity and of doubt, leaving only the most precious faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Now, let me ask you for a moment. Think of some trial that you're now going through. In other words, think of something you're upset about right now. And probably every one of you are upset about something. Maybe it's a health issue, a relational problem. Maybe it's a financial problem. Maybe a problem at work. Maybe a problem at church. Maybe you've been falsely accused. Maybe you've been cheated by someone, overlooked, persecuted for your faith. Whatever it may be. 
But what you must understand, dear Christian, is that God is using this trial to prove the genuineness of your faith. Because in the midst of your trial, you have an option. You can, on the one hand, shake your puny little fist in God's face and say that He's being unfair and unkind. You can deny Him. You can walk away from Him. You can throw a little tantrum. Or you can do what most of us do and sulk and whine and give everybody a cue why they need to feel sorry for us. Make everybody miserable around us. Or, on the other hand, you can say, God, this is a great difficulty in my life, but I will trust You come what may. I will relax in Your sovereign purposes in my life. I know that You are a good and a loving God that even ordains my afflictions. And so I'm going to pray that You will teach me in the midst of this great adversity some invaluable lesson that can make me a more fruitful servant for the kingdom. And if that is your character, if that is the attitude of your heart, if that is your conduct, you know what the result will be? Great rejoicing. Because we know that even as God was in the midst of that crucible of grace, the fires of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so too will He reveal Himself when we're in the furnace. And many of us that have been there, or perhaps are there now, know what that's like. Know the joy that can be there even when life seems to be falling apart. That internal awareness of the presence and the power of the triune God. And folks, that's the stuff of the assurance of salvation. That's the stuff of a faith that is proven. It's interesting, as I've lived with this text, Peter gives further insight to us by helping us see four aspects of trials. Let me give them to you very briefly. We look here about trials and we see that they're short-lived, they're purposeful, they're painful, and they're diverse. Let me elaborate on that for just a moment. In verse 6 there, he says, even though now for a little while, Here's the idea of trials being short-lived. Literally, in the original language, this is referring to for a season or, or a short period of time. I mean, folks, even the greatest trial will only last the rest of our life. And in relation to eternity, that's a very, very short period of time. That's why the psalmist would say in Psalm 30, verse 5, that we may weep only for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16, as he speaks to the suffering saints about persecution, he reminds them and says, Do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And then here's what he says, For momentary light affliction." is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So, our trials are short-lived, but Peter also says that they have a purpose in verse 6. He says, if necessary. If necessary. In other words, God has seen that at times it is necessary to bring about some affliction in our life. And that's when we must learn not to ask why, but what. God owes us no explanation. We could not understand it if He were to give it to us. So we don't shake our fist at Him and say, God, why are you doing this to me? 
But we say, God, what do I need to do to give you glory in the midst of this great trial? This is what Paul described in the context of his suffering along with Silas in 1 Thessalonians 3.3. He spoke of their afflictions for which we have been destined. Now think about this. When we experience some trial, it has a purpose. That purpose may be to expose our pride and produce humility. Maybe that trial is to reveal some blind spot. Maybe we need to use that trial to examine our heart and to repent of something. Or perhaps that trial is one that, is, that God is using to somehow loosen our grip on the things of this world. All it takes is one phone call with one tragic message and suddenly your priorities will change forever. And many of us know what that's about. Maybe that trial is to chasten us for some life-dominating sin. Or maybe it's to somehow demonstrate to others the genuineness of our faith. What it looks like to trust God in the midst of great adversity. In the midst of some crucible of grace because other people are always watching. Maybe that's what God is doing. Or maybe it's to teach us patience and perseverance. And the list can go on. But whether we know what God is up to or not, and most of the times we don't fully The key is how we respond. And when we respond in a way that demonstrates our trust in a sovereign and a loving God, then the experience that we have is joy, the joy of a proven faith. So our trials are short-lived. They have a purpose. But also, he says, they're painful. In verse 6, he acknowledges that you have been distressed. By the way, the term distressed in the original language means to cause great sorrow. Um, to put something to grief. And it has the idea of an anguish that affects both the body and the mind. The physical and mental and emotional pain that we can experience. You know what that's like. He's speaking here of that gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, I wish I could die type of pain. That's what he's talking about. And the Christian life is filled with that. Suffering is inevitable. And it is painful. This idea that God wants us all to be happy all the time and heaven this side of heaven and that we're all to be prosperous and pain-free. Folks, that's a dangerous lie that has seduced many. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's part of living in a fallen world. Routinely in life, God finds it necessary for us to be distressed by various trials to prove our faith. Fourthly, we see that they are diverse. Verse 6, at the end there, it speaks of various trials. Various, again, the original language has the idea of diverse or or manifold. Literally, at times, it's translated many-colored Many colored. In other words, trouble comes in every size and shape. And it usually comes, I found, when you least expect it. So suffering and trials, they're short-lived, they're purposeful. Yes, they are painful and they're diverse, but God uses them to separate genuine faith from superficial faith. And because of this, when we trust God in the midst of our trials, we experience His divine presence and true believers then, as a result of that, experience 
that ineffable joy of genuine saving faith. As Hebrews 11.1 1 says, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So back to our text, Peter reminds us that we can greatly rejoice because we have a salvation that is secure and secondly, a faith that is proven. But thirdly, we have a commendation that is inevitable. But folks, we can greatly rejoice here when we understand what this means. And what he's saying, in essence, is that we can anticipate the acclamations of praise and honor from the triune God who has sanctified us. This is an inconceivable thought to me. I wish I had more time to elaborate upon it. In verse 7, he says that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, we faithfully serve and praise God in this life. And what he's saying here and in other texts is that when we come before him someday, he is going to reciprocate. He is going to praise and honor us. Unimaginable. I ask you to savor this thought for a moment. To think that someday we will stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, as Jude 24 tells us. And then in reverent awe, we are going to look upon His face, humbled and overwhelmed at the resplendent light of His glorious Shekinah. And as we stand there, clothed in the robes of righteousness that He has given to us, consumed with speechless delight, standing before our Creator, the lover of our souls, He is going to honor us? As the text says here, with praise and glory and honor. In thinking of this, my heart was overflowed with the reality of it. And I jotted this down. Perhaps it can summarize my heart here and what I believe the text is saying. Oh, the bliss of heaven's light, the scene of His dear face. Our soul cannot conceive the sight, nor song our joy relay. Yet stand we will by grace alone, blameless with great joy. Though undeserved His mercy shown, all praise our tongue employ. But nay, that day when we must shout the glories of His name, our Savior then will turn about and praise us just the same. Oh, child of God, this is going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ reveals Himself to us. He says here, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, when we see Him in all of His glory, that will be that time, as the Lord reminds us in Matthew 25, when He will declare to His faithful servants, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. This will be that time, according to Paul's words to us in Romans 2, beginning in verse 6, when God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And it goes on to say glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Now again, friends, can you imagine the joy that must have flooded the souls of these saints who have seen their children torn apart by animals, 
who have seen some of their loved ones dipped in wax and burned alive. Those who have lost their jobs, who are hungry and starving. And here they have a threefold commendation that is inevitable, that's coming from the Lord, that He is going to give you praise and glory and honor. An amazing thought. And what a motivation for holy living. Reminds me of our Lord's parables, especially the one of the expected steward in Luke chapter 12, verse 37 we read, where He says, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Unbelievable. Beloved, please remember, you will never be able to transcend the sufferings of the temporal unless you are able to fix your mind upon the eternal. And you cannot do that unless you understand the Word of God, especially with respect to the living hope that we have in Christ Jesus and our salvation. That's why the doctrine of salvation is so important. To understand from beginning to end, it's all of grace. This was the very heart of Peter's message to these suffering saints. In fact, later on, in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And then look, he says, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, friends, we've got to learn to live for the future as we walk by the Spirit of God, which literally means to submit to the Spirit of God as He has revealed Himself to us through His Word on a moment-by-moment basis. It means that we don't get preoccupied with life, don't get hung up with politics and materialism and consumed with your retirement and entertainment. I, I, I see this bumper sticker every now and then that says, he who has the most toys when he dies wins. No, he doesn't. He loses. If you want to gain your life, you've got to be willing to give it, right? We don't lay up our treasures here on earth. We lay them up in heaven. And we've got to learn to live consistently with that great truth. And for those of you who truly know Christ... I hope that you will learn to visualize that moment when you suddenly stand face to face with the lover of your souls. When you stand face to face with the triune God who has chosen, sanctified, sealed, and blessed you. As Peter has reminded us earlier, these are therefore the thoughts that need to govern our life. But for those of you who don't know Christ, I would challenge you as a servant of God To visualize not your Savior, but your judge. As you see the penetrating eyes of omniscient holiness peering into your sinful heart and exposing your rebellion against Him. And I pray that you will hear His voice. Because unless you repent, someday you will hear, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But notice, not only do we rejoice because we possess a salvation that is secure, a faith that is proven, and a commendation that is inevitable, but also because, fourthly, we have a love that is unseen. 
In verse 8 it says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, sometimes we like to excuse our disobedience and our lack of spiritual discipline by saying, well, you know, all of it's so hard, it would have been so much easier if we could have been with the Savior, if we could just really see Him. If we were to see Him and walk with Him, then things would go much better. But friends, that's not so. Peter is a perfect example of this. And I believe that's why he's writing that here. He was the leader of the apostles, the closest one to the Lord. Imagine living closely and learning from the Lord Jesus Christ those three years. Three years of intimate mentoring. And yet what did he do? He denied the Lord three times. And folks, we would have probably done the same. If not that, probably something worse. Later on, Jesus even had to ask him, Peter, do you even love me? Do you even love me? And so here, Peter, being aware of his own failures, and yet now recognizing the power of the Spirit of God in the life of an obedient Christian whose faith has been tested, here he praises these dear saints for their ongoing agape love for the Lord, that love of the will, that love of the choice that sometimes may not have all of the emotion with it, but you're choosing to love God. And this is the kind of love that he's saying that is yet another proof of genuine saving faith. You see, friends, this is more than some shallow, schmaltzy, sentimental love. But this is the love that engages the mind, a love that engages the will, With the mind, we believe in Him. And with the will, we choose to obey Him and to persevere. And because of this, He's saying, you greatly rejoice with inexpressible joy and full of glory. Inexpressible. An interesting word. Anikleletos in the original language. It's It's a fascinating word because it means that it's something that is unspeakable. It is um, inexpressible. It is one of my favorite words, ineffable. It's too wondrous to even speak from the lips. It's the type of joy that causes you, frankly, to be silent. You just don't know what to say. It's when the mind is so overwhelmed with a sense of divine mystery that it cannot employ the tongue to speak. It's when the thoughts of the glories of our salvation exceed our ability to communicate. That's what he's saying here. And and why would anybody have this? Well, it's because of the unseen love that is the possession of true believers. You see, those of us who truly know Christ, and I hope you all truly do, understand what it means to have a secret devotion to God. You understand what it means to long to be in the presence of God in prayer and long to immerse yourself in His Word and to hear His voice. You long for that personal fellowship because it is so sweet. It is so real. There is nothing on earth that compares to it. That's what genuine worship is. This is that supernatural love. And because we enjoy this ineffable fellowship, we experience a transcendent joy. We greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
glory from the word doxadzo. We get the word doxology from that, which means an overflow of praise to God from within our heart. Let me make this real practical. I don't need some screaming preacher with manipulative music to somehow conjure up a sense of worship and joy in my heart. All I need is to hear the voice of my Savior through the preaching of His Word, through the teaching of His Word, through the praying of His Word, and through the singing of His Word. I don't care about all that other stuff. I know the Savior and I know the sound of His voice. He is the object of my faith, the object of my love. And when we hear His voice, our hearts are overflowing with joy. That's why it's so hollow to go to some services or read certain books where it's just emotion and fluff and pontification. You see, friends, again, as Peter says, we have a living hope, not a dead one that has to be revived every Sunday. I don't need some revival every year to somehow get my spiritual motor going again. But I can understand what it means to enjoy the presence of the living God as I live out my faith. And as we live out our faith, we understand more of the hope that is ours and the joy that is ours. And faith comes by what? By hearing. And hearing comes by what? By the Word of God. You want faith, which means you want your hope, you want joy. You've got to listen to the Word of God. You've got to learn the Word of God. So let me hear the voice of my Savior then and then only. Can I worship Him in spirit and in truth? The subjective that is regulated by the objective. Well, finally, as we examine Peter's reasonings for rejoicing, as if it weren't enough to rejoice because we have a salvation that is secure, a faith that is proven, a commendation that is inevitable, a love that is unseen. Finally, fifthly, we have a deliverance that is in progress. Notice what he says in verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The word obtaining here is so important. It comes from a root word that means to receive what is due, to receive what is deserved. And here, what it's literally saying, as we understand the grammar of the text, is that we're presently receiving for ourselves as the outcome of our faith, our salvation. The salvation of our souls. A child of God, do not miss this. This is so precious. Right now, this very moment, every one of you who have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is experiencing a process of salvation, a deliverance that is in progress. And it will continue until you enter into the presence of His glory. And actually, it will continue on from there. Because our deliverance is in progress. It says we are presently receiving for ourselves as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Well, what all is involved in this process? Well, my, we could go on for hours with all that is involved in this process right now. But suffice it to say 
that we know that He is sanctifying us by the Word of God. The Lord Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. There is a process whereby God uses His Word to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what's happening right now. That's what happens all during the week. Not only that, the Father is faithful to love us and to protect us and to provide for us. We read that the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis is sanctifying us. He instructs us. He empowers us for service. He seals us for the day of redemption. He even intercedes for us in prayer, Romans 8. Moreover, the Lord Jesus Christ right now sits at the right hand of the Father and mediates for us as our advocate before God's bar of justice. And He continues to make intercession for us as our faithful high priest. And on and on it goes. We have a deliverance that is in progress. So currently, we are being delivered If you want to put it in a very simple way, we are being delivered from the power of sin until that day in which we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. Now, folks, that's something to rejoice about. So I pray that the next time your hearts grow heavy with the cares of this world, that you will remember these divine reasons for rejoicing, reasons that are summarized so perfectly by Charles Spurgeon. And I close with this quote. Ah, he says, even when the Christian is most in heaviness through manifold temptations, what a mercy it is that he can know that he is still elect of God. And many who is assured that God has chosen him from before the foundation of the world may well say, wherein we greatly rejoice. When flesh and heart faileth, God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. I know whom I have believed And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Let's pray together. Father, may the glorious truths of this text motivate us to serve you more faithfully. And may they likewise encourage us to experience the joy that is the rightful possession of every child of God who has been transformed by Your Spirit. Thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.